Today, we will be continuing in our series, The Servant King. And our passage this morning is Mark 1, 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Nate. Uh, serve as pastor here. Um, so we started last week a series of the Gospel of Mark and Tell the Servant King. And we said last week that this news that was coming was this, that Jesus has come to inaugurate a new kingdom. And that's good news. And what we're going to see in these next few weeks is that this kingdom is set to restore the whole world to its ultimate life and beauty and freedom. But this only comes one way. It comes through this. It comes through this world coming under Jesus, the true king's rule and authority. And this week, we see the summons, the call of this king to come under. And there's three things Jesus says. He says, repent, believe, and follow. Or to put it another way, personally, if you are going to experience the restoration of this kingdom in your life, in all of its life, in all of its beauty, and in all of its freedom, you've got to come under this king's rule. Now, let me say two things. One, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you hear that, and oftentimes you look in, and that seems stifling. It seems very much like, wait, wait, come on. Doesn't sound like very fun at all. And I want you to hold on. Hold on for a little bit, okay? Because if you hold on, I want you to understand, at least I hope in part today, that actually this is the way back to who you're meant to be. But secondly, if you're a Christian, oftentimes, I'll put it this way, oftentimes when I meet Christians, they hear repent, believe, follow, and they view repent, believe as this like one-time thing. Or it's kind of like the, when things get really bad, then we do that. But I want to tell you this morning, repent, believe, follow, it's actually the warp and woof of the Christian life. Let me put it this way. Um, think about riding a bike, okay? I don't ride with my hands, but I, I can't show you with my feet. But <laughs> think, of, think of two pedals, and, and, and I would just put it this way, repent and believe are two sides, two pedals. You, you don't, you don't it, it's the engine. And then, of course, the handlebars are the follow. You got it, right? It all fits together. Um, in other words, uh, today, if you're stuck, uh, if you lack joy, uh, th- then I would say th- this, is, this is the key. This is actually, this is what it means to be a Christian, 
This is what it means to follow, to repent, believe, and follow, and, and this is what renews us. And so, um, this is good news for all of us today. So, let me pray, and we'll get in on what that means for us. So, let's, let's do that. Father, we uh, come to you today as we are, and we just pray, uh, firstly, that we would see you, Jesus, for who you are, who you really are. We'd see that afresh. And then secondly, that we'd see ourselves for who we are, and that you do a work here this morning and change us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, well, Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark is this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, and the first word is repent. Uh, repent. This is not a new word in the Scriptures. This happens throughout Scriptures, but there's something unique. Uh, when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, this is a decisive moment. In other words, it's a heightened tension. It's, it's saying there's a lot at stake here. But what does it mean to repent? Listen, um, put it this way. In our modern context, I would submit to you, some of you, you hear the word repent, and this is what you think. The word repent <clears throat> is really to make people feel guilty. It's to make people feel guilty. And one of the things that's interesting about our modern day is in a culture that says the number one thing is self-esteem, you hear that and you, you just rebuff it. You're like, I'm not going to listen to that. Guilt is bad. I need to build up some level of self-esteem. And there you, therefore, you initially just reject it. Um, some of you hear the word repent, and you just hear this, stop it. <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, and, and, and in some way or another, you hear that, and some of us, I mean, to be honest, we know there are some things we shouldn't be doing, right? And there are some people, honestly, who they hear the word repent, they look at their life, and there are some things that they go, I, yeah, I need to correct that, and they do change, but here's where things go. Oftentimes, down the road, what happens is those very people who repent become very self-righteous. They look at their life and what God has dealt them and how they've changed their life around, and all of a sudden, they get a little bit further along, and then they go, well, why can't you do that? Is that what Jesus is calling us to can I tell you something? When Jesus says repent, whether it's the first person that I just said who, you know, thinks that it's made to feel guilty, or whether it's the second, stop it, I'll just say things are far worse. <laughs> That's the ironic part. Um, I would put it this way. Jesus is almost like, when he says repent, this is like an intervention. Uh, do you know what an intervention is? You know, it's when a family, when a group of family or friends come together and they look at someone they love. And they see the self-destructive behavior of their life and it's destroying them, destroying the relationships around them, and they see it spiraling. And they sit down, right, and they lovingly confront. I would say that is actually a better picture of what Jesus is doing here. But, but to get a better picture, let me, let me put it this way. Repent is always a relational term. It's a relational term. And Look with me for a moment in Jeremiah. It's a great, vivid picture of what this looks like. In Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, the prophet says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
This is a very vivid word picture, but you'll notice the, the prophet says, my people have done two evils. And the first is, they've forsaken me. Uh, earlier on in the chapter, talking about the relationship that God's people had with God was this, that they were his bride. And so this language of what's happened is that they've left God. They've abandoned God. They've walked out on God. But the second evil isn't only they've walked out on God, they've gone to another mistress. When it says they've hewed out cisterns, it's talking about going to something else other than God. In other words, the situation is this. It's like a spouse packing up their things and leaving for someone who's not their spouse. It's like Alexander Hamilton leaving Elizabeth Schuyler for Maria Reynolds. Repentance is relational. Jesus, the true king, is saying, you've walked out on God, and you've run to someone else, something else. And what's interesting is this image is actually, uh, it tells us how foolish this is, how deep the problem is. Um, you know, in the ancient Near East, uh, much more prevalent then than we recognize today, but water, right, was everything. You, you really couldn't, you can't live without it. We have running water. In fact, this last week, um, something happened on our street. We were, we were like a whole day without water. We had to go somewhere else, and it was, it totally disrupted our lives. But in the ancient Near East, you didn't have running water, right? So you had to be by a water source. And notice what the prophet's saying. Over here, God is like this fountain, a bubbling brook of living water. And then over here are cisterns. And cisterns in those days were basically just wells. It's what you would use when rainwater came to store water. And so you have these people who are looking at God, who's a fountain of living water, and over here at a cistern, by the way, that's leaking, can't hold the water, and they're choosing that. Well, you might say, well, that's them. I mean, that's their day. That's, that's certainly not, not us. Well, listen to David Foster Wallace. Again, this is at least once a year I put this in here because he's just so helpful and insightful. And again, he's not a Christian. But th listen to what he says. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You'll end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. Man, you hear what Wallace is saying? You don't have to be religious to worship. If you are alive, you worship. If you are alive, there's something you are running to for life. 
And notice how, I love how Wallace puts it, to tap your meaning and significance. All of us do it. It's how we were built. But notice what he says, it'll eat you alive. Or to put it in Jeremiah's words, it's a, it's a broken cistern. It won't hold. I remember a number, of, a number, a number of years ago counseling someone who was very successful in business. They were speaking at conferences, their business was growing, they're clearly an influencer, a mover and shaker, and yet, as I sat across the kitchen table from them, their life was a mess. I remember um, their marriage was not doing well. Personally, this person was exhausted, constantly overworked, overcommitted, and they knew they had to make changes. But one of the things that they said in the midst of talking about this situation is, is they admitted that at some point they were trying to prove that they were worthy. In other words, underneath all, underneath all of it was this need to be worthy, and business was a way to demonstrate it, to prove it. And everything else was an obstacle. Everything else was a means to that end, and therefore, life was out of balance. Don't you see the word repent? It's an intervention. It's a summons to do a 180 from what you and I are doing, running to life, anything outside of God. It is to build your identity, your value, your significance, your meaning on anything other than God. Where do you go? Where, where do I go? Let me give you some questions. Where does your mind tend to drift when you lie awake in bed? What do you spend your disposable income on? What is it in other people that you envy? What is one thing, if God were to appear to you today and tell you you would never have, it would make you feel like life was not worth living? One more. How is your present discouragement, disappointment, or grief a window into what has actually captured your heart. Jesus is lovingly intervening in our lives. He's calling us to repent, to turn around from that which we run to other than Him for life and significance. And listen, I realize for some of you, you know, you, you may even say, I'm not even sure if there's a God right? You might, I don't, I don't know, maybe. But how about this? If there is a God and He made you and me, don't you see you owe Him absolutely everything? And listen, this is not merely a, a one-time response of a Christian, or nor is it even merely, uh, I was really bad this week. No, this is, this is actually the warp and woof of the Christian life. Martin Luther, the first of the 99 theses he, he nailed was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. 
And so don't you understand, if your life is going to be restored to the life and beauty of this kingdom and this king, the first word is always the first word. It's always repent. But the second is believe. Believe in the gospel. Have you guys ever run up an escalator the wrong way? Ever done that? All the kids are like, yeah, I've I've done that. My parents told me not to. I did anyway, right? Or, I think most of us, when we hear, when we think about what to do next after we repent, we think something like running up an escalator that's going down. It's this dynamic to get busy, to get to work, to, to do better, to work hard at making up for what you've done. And we all know it's exhausting. But notice that Jesus, his summons is not that. His summons is to believe in the gospel. We said this last week, gospel is news, it's not advice. The gospel is not running up a descending escalator to God. It is God coming down and descending to us. You know, we saw last week the the backdrop of Mark was this, the world's in exile because of sin. But God in his kindness has promised that one day he would come and rescue the world through mercy and judgment. And Jesus is the one who's come to do that. And and Mark identifies Jesus as the long-awaited king who's come. And here's how he does it. You'll hear it each week. It's at the end of the book. Spoiler. Right? He comes to bear our judgment through the cross. He comes to do what you and I cannot do. Listen, honestly, many of us, we think that what we need most is moral instruction. And Jesus does teach. We'll see that next week. But we need more than a teacher. We need a Savior. In other words, it's not a question of our performance. It's a question of will we rely on Him? A couple hundred years ago, John Newton, a pastor, was writing a man who was depressed, and this is what he wrote. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. You say it is hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promise of the Redeemer. Do you see what Newton is doing? He's pointing out to this man who is depressed, who thinks there's no way God could forgive him. You're not believing. I wonder if perhaps this morning, some of you, you think, I'm just too terrible. I've done far too many things. I've walked the other direction for far too long. Or last week I said I wasn't going to do this and I did it again. And you wonder, gosh, could, what, really? The answer is believe. The other problem is some of you, <laughs> you don't think you need a Savior. You think you're just doing just fine. But both of those responses are unbelief. 
Jesus is not offering advice, he's announcing news. And so if you're not a Christian, hear this. It means God is not calling you to earn your way to him or somehow improve yourself to be acceptable to him. If you're honest, even if you tried, you couldn't keep it up for very long, right? The news is that he has done it. He has accomplished it through Jesus. That God is so committed to restoring this world and you in it that he's gone all the way. And listen, if you're a Christian, this is the key to growth. And this is what is so often hard for so many of us. Accepting your acceptance. I know that sounds backwards, but so many of you lack joy and you actually lack progress in the Christian faith because you don't actually believe you're accepted. And I know some of you are like, ah, pastor, I think you might be a heretic. I mean, I think maybe um, we need a little bit more law. Well, okay, let me give you one, 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 one chapter and verse. Uh, just for a moment, Peter, writing, there's a moment in 2 Peter 1 where he's writing, he says, he's writing to Christians, he says, make every effort to grow. Every effort, do everything. And he says to grow in knowledge and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection. And, he, you know, I mean, think about that. He's saying, like, love others, self-control, stop doing some things, do other things. I mean, he's getting steadfast, be faithful, show up. And he's saying, make every effort. But then at the very end, at the very end, he says this in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you realize what Peter just said? Peter just said, you've forgotten the gospel. That's why you're not growing. You've forgotten you've been cleansed. You've forgotten how much this God loves you. That's why you're so lazy. That's why you're not growing, because you don't see the costliness of his love and how committed he is to you. And Keller makes this, notes this. I think this is true. Unless you know and you're deeply assured of God's commitment to you, you will not be able to be honest with how sinful you and I really are. Because here's what happens, um, and, and I'm, it's like this, if you and I build our performance or our image on our record and performance, then we actually catch a glimpse of who we really are. It'll be too traumatic. We'll, we'll make excuses. We'll, we'll diminish it. We'll say, oh, well, it's because of this. Let me tell you one sign or what might be a sign that we're beginning to grasp the gospel? Who knows you really well? I mean, who knows you? Who knows who you really are? You know, we, we started City Groups kind of this last week, launching. <clears throat> and that's always an adventure because there's a number of new faces and you're in this community, and you're around the scriptures, and in one way or another, I think we kind of show up and it's like, okay, I better have my stuff together this week, <laughs> you know? 
But isn't that folly? I mean, come on, people. What if, what if the gospel really was at work in a way where it was okay to be truly known? Not the preferred version, but just the real version. And I recognize that takes time. It's probably not week one, (laughs) maybe, but it takes time. But if we're orbiting around and we're following this one, it ought to produce something in our community, some vulnerability. So repent and believe. And then lastly, follow. This is verse 16 to 20, of course. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you become fishers of men. And I, I think this comes down to two things, what we see here in the response. The first is this. To follow Jesus, it means that Jesus must be above all other claims on your life. So in, look at verses 18 through 20, how the disciples respond. And immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Notice the, the immediacy of their response, right? That says something. But then look at what they're leaving behind. In that day and age, family was literally everything. It was everything. It's not so big of a deal in our day, like, you know, leave your parents, go move across the country, whatever. But in that day and age, that was a big deal. That was radical. They leave that, they, they, they leave their vocation, All other claims in our life lose their validity. In other words, Jesus, if you're really following him, he can't be an addendum, right? He can't be an accessory to your life. Jesus cannot even be a means to the end. Jesus cannot fit nicely into two hours on Sunday. Somehow, some way, he's got to be at the center of everything. And doesn't that make sense? I mean, logically speaking, right? Like, if he really is who he is, the Christ, the long awaited king, the divine son of God, who has given himself completely, laid down his life, he's committed that to you. And then, right? For so often, so often, we, he's second, or he's down the list. But listen, that doesn't stop him from coming after you, does it? It doesn't stop his steadfast love. But the second piece is this. Uh, when Jesus says, follow me, it, it's a call to direction. Uh, it's a call to an apprenticeship to Jesus. And simply put, it's to trust and obey him in all things. To trust and obey him in all things, in all situations. Um, let me... Let me finish out just sharing two different stories, and then we'll be done. Some of you know Eric Little, may not know the name, but he was an Olympic gold medalist for Great Britain in the early 20th century. And one of the things that's unique about his story, he was a Christian, and his, he qualified for three different races at the Olympics. His best race was the 100-meter dash. And he went to the Olympics, 
and he found out that the qualifying heat to make it to the final was on Sunday. And for Eric Little, he was a Christian, Sunday was a Sabbath. And so, against all the pressure of the Olympic Committee of Great Britain, everybody around him, he refused it. All other claims on his life lost their validity. He didn't run. His best race. Are you kidding me? He did win the 400, so that's something, you know? But let me put it this way. At some point in your life, Jesus is going to cross your will. And the question is, what are you going to do? Let me put it this way. If you're single and you're looking for a spouse, what does it mean to follow him in that? Is it simply looks and income? Or is it actually someone who deeply knows and loves Christ, right? Or how about this? How about wealth? Is Jesus saying priorities in what you spend and your budget and how you give and how you prioritize? How you love your neighbor? Listen, at some point in your life, Christ is going to come in and you're gonna, it's going to be the question, are you going to submit to him? But secondly, one of the things that's interesting about Eric Little is at one point in his life, his sister, who he dearly loved, came to him and challenged him because his parents were missionaries in China. And his sister said, hey, like there's so much need over there. Why are you running? And was challenging him. And you know what Eric Little said? He said this, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now, that may sound strange, right? Because some of you are like, when I run, there's no pleasure, right? <laughs> You're like, that doesn't sound fun. But this is what's so freeing about following Christ. Because it means this, who you are created to be, the gifts, the opportunities, how he's made you, all of a sudden you understand that they're from him and they're for him. Everything. And here's a, the, the beautiful part about Eric Little is he didn't have to run for his own glory. He knew he had the acceptance of the Father. He had all the glory he needed. He didn't need to prove himself. He'd been received. You know what? Later on, he actually did go to China. Spent 18 years there. He died there. But that means if you're following him, it means that your gifts, your, your position, they are an opportunity to make much of him. That's what they're there for. And that means a couple things. Years ago, there was a young woman who wasn't a Christian who visited a church. And the reason she came was because at one point, her, she made a huge mistake at the company. And it would have cost her job. But her boss took the fall for her. He had more street cred. He'd been there for a while. And she was absolutely stunned. She was like, wait, wait, hold on. See, you know how it works in business or in you know, company. It's like when somebody below you has an idea, of those above, you take the credit, right? And this person did the very opposite. He took the failure. And she's like, would you please tell me why? 
He said, okay, fine. I'll tell you why. Because of the center of my faith. That's what God has done for me. He's taken my failure. And that's why she showed up at the church. Let me ask you, how are you using your power? How are you using your influence? Is it just to pad your own income? Is it just to help you get above? Don't you understand, if you're following the servant king, it changes how you work with power. It actually changes how you serve and love those around you. One last one. And this is maybe even the hardest, but how are you presently suffering? To follow Christ, that means trusting Him in all situations. And listen, that means even now, whatever you're walking through, somehow He's at work, even if you don't see it. I know a widow who lost her husband at a younger age. And it has been a long road. It's been a moment by moment, day by day, struggle and yet challenge to trust that this is what God has for her. But I'll tell you this, if you knew her, you would know now that there are opportunities before her to walk alongside many others who have had to walk that same road now. And she does so, right? Directing them to the one who has sustained her. Follow. David Brooks, a number of years ago at a commencement speech, he's a New York Times author, he said the following, we are not a society that nurtures commitment making. We live in a culture that puts a lot of emphasis on individual liberty and freedom of choice, but your fulfillment in life will not come from how well you explore your freedom and keep your options open. That's the path to a frazzled, scattered life in which you try to please everyone and end up pleasing no one. Your fulfillment in life will come by how well you end your freedom. And although Brooks wasn't just talking about faith here, I'll put it this way. To sum it up, Jesus the King comes when he says, repent, believe, and follow. He calls us to end our freedom and find it in him. And don't you see, he's the only one. Don't you see, he voluntarily gave up his freedom. On the cross. Don't, don't you see it? He's the one who's that committed to you. Don't you see it? No, no one else will love you like that. No one else will lead you like that. And all of that is so that you might experience life and power and beauty of this king and this kingdom. So here's the challenge. End your freedom. Commit yourself to him. Repent, believe, and follow. Let's pray.
Father, we, um, we know in part what you're calling us to, and we know in part what, we know some things we don't even know what you're calling us to. But Lord, we, um, we want to collectively respond as you're asking us to. And so, Lord, I, I pray for those who are perhaps not submitted their life to you, trusted you as Lord and Savior, that they would once again, perhaps for the first time, catch a glimpse of the one who has given themselves for, for them. And they would come under your good rule and authority. And Lord, for many of us, the divided loyalties we have, the things we run to, thank you for your steadfast love, and yet give us grace Give us grace to turn from those things that do not give life. Give us grace to see you as you are, to trust that you accept us as we are because of the work of your Son. And then give us grace to follow you with everything we have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.